Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lucas and Vincent were not in the mainstream of gay life. I was saving body parts, such as uh, skulls. Doesn't it bother you that he's a fag? You have done me a great service. Now I must service you. And the drugs were, were always a, a cry for attention, for somebody to pay attention to me before I, you know, kill somebody. <laughs> You can imagine what it smells like if you go into a closed room. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Buckle up, Sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies Podcast. You're going to true crime, horror, and everything man on man and macabre. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, staring at the beautiful face of Sam Hamilton. Remember when I used to come up with tailored... Introductions Look, for you. Look, this is okay. I can, I can be default beautiful. I'll, I'll I, accept that. Yeah, look, I, I ran out of segues. Oh. You needed to have been wearing, like, interesting hats or I'll something. always be your slave, baby. Although okay. I am wearing, like, a bondage belt today, as I said you to Jeremy. You are, you are. And he's too thin for the bondage belt, yes, which just makes me jealous. It's scrunching a bit at the back, but, you know, from the front it looks great. Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice. Uh, after a short break from the killer universe, because we've, we've done two movies yeah, in a row. Yeah, two movies in a row. Yeah. Uh, we are back to talking about a sinister sissy who, uh, could be responsible for a minimum of nine victims, potentially up to 21 was the highest estimate I heard. Did you hear fire? I heard that it was minimum of 11 up to 21. Oh, that might actually be correct. Because more bodies that were never identified were found. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the number of victims here. We are talking about Herb Baumeister, who may or may not be also the I-70 Strangler. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one this week because... Unlike, you know, our usual perpetrators who we get to go through the trial and all that kind of stuff, Herber left this earth before he could be convicted of anything. So a lot yeah. of stuff is, you know, very speculative or we just don't know anything beyond the victims. You know, we don't know quite what went down. Even witnesses. There's not many witnesses involved in this case that can help us sketch events together. Yeah. And the two main witnesses are de-identified, so we can't even Yeah. You know, we can't even go detective and chase them down if we wanted to. Not uh, that we would. Uh, I mean we could. <laughs> I'm up for that. We could do a detective. Let's do, let's do a victim harassing special. <laughs> <laughs> um we're true crime podcasters, Sam, it's our right. We're journalists. Uh so sure. so 
the the herb story is uh, a bit patchy because of that um, in terms of the kind of nitty-gritty details but there is a quite interesting story both about herbs early life and also the investigation itself and how herb ended up being identified as a killer of young gay men Herb was born on the 7th of April 1947 in Indianapolis uh, to a wealthy family. His father was an anesthesiologist, um, and by all accounts, Herb had a normal early childhood, uh, but things changed when he became a teenager. As a teen, Herb had some interesting interests. Uh, He became fascinated by death, Um, and kind of transgressing social norms and he would often torture his teachers there is at least one story of him peeing on a teacher's desk and another of leaving a dead bird on uh on a teacher's desk as well bit of a prankster yeah interesting too the urination pranks didn't stop in school he carried that into his professional life too so (laughs) he liked liked a bit of water sports well so there is at least one true crime author and i got his name down we don't normally do this um a true crime author by the name of ryan green has like a whole theory that one of the main compulsions of her baumeister is he was just very into pee pee. <laughs> like okay. he had like a urine that's what's the what's the the shorthand for that? Like water sports. Yeah. I mean he liked to kill people by the pool allegedly. So that kinda of, kinda of all ties in. Yeah, and I wonder if it's the, the, the transgression that was interesting uh to him. But he was definitely fascinated by urine. He would say to classmates that he enjoyed the taste of urine. Okay. So there was there was a weird pee pee we can see why he had trouble fitting in yeah so he was known as being kind of a a weird kid and see i was weird because i used to draw numbers in the air oh yeah i think i think i was tested for autism because i drew numbers numbers in the air yeah i just i used to like doing mathematical equations in the air with my finger like i would draw numbers i don't think it's that weird but you know i was very into like wicca and i got in trouble because i formed like a little primary school cult and a little and a girl cut her finger because she was bleeding <laughs> oh on God. our ritual, <laughs> um, and then I got in trouble. And then I remember my mum uh, was like telling me off about it, but then she also asked, like, "Is it real?" <laughs> <laughs> well, mum, you wait and see. Um, so yeah, we can be. There's nothing wrong with a weird kid. I don't want to like demonize the weird kid vibes here. Um, and look, if you're into the pee-pee, perfectly fine. Uh, But this was getting uh, slightly troubling. He was often very disruptive in class um, and his father sent him off to get a medical evaluation and he was diagnosed and why there wasn't more follow up from this, I don't know, but he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and also got a tentative diagnosis of multiple personality disorder, which is slightly... uh, I don't want to say a sketchy diagnosis, but it's a bit of an out-of-favour diagnosis these days. But definitely some sort of psychotic disorder. Yeah, it was never followed up on. I don't, well, I no. mean, he was institutionalised later in life at one point, but there was never any follow-up treatment or anything. 
So it's kind of like the seeds are already there that things weren't going to go well for her, but yeah, nothing was done. Well, I think one person chalked it up to, and I think this is a very favourable reading of the parents, but they chalked it up to the fact that in the 1960s, which is what we're talking about here, treatments for schizophrenia were fairly limited to like electroconvulsive therapy and institutionalization. So wealthy and he's an anesthetic his father's an anesthesiologist remember so he'd be very well aware of this maybe there was a question of okay well we're not gonna we're not gonna institutionalize yeah. that's probably a like relevant point too because his father did have him committed at one point so yes. he obviously it's not like he didn't believe that he was unwell or anything he just probably didn't think that like the medical institutions could help him uh, Herb started, so his high school years were relatively uneventful apart from getting medically assessed. Um, he did start college briefly, but then soon dropped out. And uh, in college is where he met his future wife, uh, Juliana, or, or also known as Julie. Um, they met, and like, here's a red flag, they met <laughs> as uh, college Republicans because mm. they were both very socially conservative types which i think helps contextualize some of julie's uh odd behavior let's just say denial was her friend <laughs> sorry julie if you, if you hear this uh herb and julie married in 1971 um however just six months after they were married uh herb was committed to an institution we don't know why he was committed to an institution that's never been publicly released but he was there for two months before returning home. Yeah, and it is said that Julie was really supportive and stood by his side during this time. So, yeah. you know, maybe it was, you know, some real once-in-a-lifetime love. I always feel, like, uh, tentative and bad when we're talking about people that end up being killers that have serious mental health issues. Like, I don't want to, like, I hate being that overly, like, politically correct person and being, like people with mental health issues aren't dangerous and blah, 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 blah. But, like, it is true. <laughs> um, and, you know, there probably would have been a scenario of this where if you got adequate support, maybe horrible things wouldn't have happened in the future. Um, through his father's connections, Herb did land a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Um, he was eventually fired... From that job, though, because of PP, because of some PP, he had a PP issue. It was on a letter um, addressed to the governor. You know, apparently that was the final straw. He'd done it at least one other time. Yeah. People like swept it under the rug, but this was like, no, this dishonor. We will not dishonor the governor like this. You're fired. It's interesting. There was there was another less controversial prank apparently where him and a colleague um, did drag and sent people Christmas cards or something. But I think in Indiana, uh, this would have been quite scandalous. frowned upon. I think even now it would be <laughs> in parts of America like that. Um, despite the fact that Julie has claimed that, uh, Herb and her only had sex, uh, six times, um, red flag, Julie, uh, if you're only having sex, six, about 25 years of marriage. Although she was obviously very fertile though. I mean, she, three kids, six encounters. Yeah, they did. They had three kids. They had Marie, Eric and Emily. Um, and that, yeah, three out of six. Those are pretty good odds for fertility. Um, uh, when he got fired for PP problems, uh, he had a brief stint of unemployment, um, 
where he was involved in really random criminal offences that has never been well described. He was involved in that drunken hit and run, and he was also charged briefly with stealing a friend's car. And I think stealing the friend's car is actually where he's most... um, Because obviously he doesn't have... We don't have many, like... We don't have any post-arrest photos from the murders. The mugshot that's often used to identify him is from the stolen car incident. Yeah, he was formally charged there, but was let off without any serious punishment. Um, there, I mean, I never know whether to trust wild speculation by journalists and stuff, but um, there were people talking about the fact that Herb's father was very well respected in the community and whether or not that's had some influence in the kind of light judicial treatment that he'd received. Um By the mid-80s, Herb was working in a thrift shop, which would become something of a calling for himself and Julie. They they learned how to run a business, um, and they started a series of thrift shops in the local area. Um, It was initially quite successful, and with that success, they purchased um, a piece of land known as Fox Hollow Farm. Now an infamous like ghost hunting sort of location. Yeah, I was about to say, we, when I, when you, you know when I mention a specific location that that's potentially going to come into play somewhere in the future. Uh, yeah, suspected haunt, haunting. Um, uh, people who worked for Herb and Julie um, said that Herb initially was very proactive in the business but seemed distracted and would often not show up to work. So by all outside appearances, uh, Herb was an odd person, um, certainly somewhat of a troubled person, but also, you know, at this point, kind of successful. Well, he definitely seemed to have that kind of charisma that, like, you could imagine someone being successful in business with. Like, we found this video of him randomly um, in his in his town a raccoon got run over on the side of the road and they did a news story about well, it. Well no no so the controversy was a local council worker was like laying down a line. Mm. Wasn't this the thing? He was painting a line and saw the raccoon and ran over the raccoon anyway. And Herb I haven't listened to the clip but I heard about the story. Herb was, like, claiming that he was, like, outraged. Yeah, that... he was like, that poor animal. But he did take some photos of it, though, I think. So he was he was empathising, but then he was, you know, keeping some memoirs for later. That is some fucking <laughs> local news, though. I can't believe, yeah. But you can tell by the clip, which you can easily find online, that, yeah, he seemed like quite an engaging and personable kind of person, like a fun dad. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just strike right over its face and neck. And I didn't even move it, you know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. So I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot of the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, uh, a painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. Which is kind of interesting given he was diagnosed with schizophrenia where often people with schizophrenia have that kind of, those negative symptoms, that withdrawal type stuff. But he didn't seem to have that. He seemed to be like relatively normal um, when you spoke to him. 
Yeah, it seems like those outward symptoms kind of happened towards the end of his life when that's when the business started falling apart and he started, you know, making scenes at work and maybe well, like well, being so rude we, at work anyway. So <laughs> that's an interesting point though because we don't know when Herb started killing. Um, and there are, so authorities have on their record um, a number of killings which they attribute to the I-70 Strangler. I-70 was the name of the highway where a number of these people either um, were last seen or where their bodies were dumped near. Um, so there's the I-70 Strangler and then there's the official victims of her Baumeister. Um, and so that's important to note because the time periods are very different. There are similarities in the victims and because, spoiler, I think we've already spoiled this, Herb died before he could confess to anything. We don't know how many of these victims can actually be attributed to Herb. Yeah, basically the speculation is because the I-71 murders stopped in 1991, which was the year that Herb moved to the Fox Hollow farm. Yeah. And in 1998, someone came forward with a photo of Herb with one of the victims of the I-71 murders allegedly at the last location they were seen. Yeah. So it's a little bit sketchy, but there's definitely been a lot, been people as well who have disagreed and said that this was just a convenient way for the police department to wrap that up. Well, I think I think that the sketchiness comes into play if I just list off some of the I-70 Strangler victims and we compare them to the ones that we definitely know her killed. Um, so there was Michael Petrie, who was 15 years old and was known to be selling sex in Indianapolis gay bars. His body was discovered in 1980. So this is going quite far mm. back um, for Herb. We have uh, Maurice Taylor, 23, um, homeless man also known for selling sex at local gay bars. Uh, his body was found in 1982. Uh, Delvoid Lee Baker, 14, who again was known to be selling sex at gay bars. Um, he is the only black victim known uh, to be tied to Herb. And he's one of the big ones that people point to and say, you want to kind of cross this off your police, you know, rap sheet or whatever, your, your, yeah. your list of um, unsolved crimes. So you're lumping this in even though no other victim uh, by Herb was this young or African-American. I suppose you could argue, though, that maybe in this, in this particular area, maybe there isn't a very high African-American population, I'm not sure. So maybe, mm. maybe it was just, that, you know. Well, so so um, unfortunately, the killing of sex workers is usually opportunistic. Um, and so that the narrative is that Herb probably was at a gay bar and was offered sex by one of these guys or boys, I should probably say, um, and then used that in order to kill them. Um, all of the victims that I've listed so far, um, were strangled, um, which is also part of his MO. Um, just quickly, I just want to list off all the victims just to show you the, the breadth of what we're talking about here. Um, Michael Riley, 22, disappeared in 1983. Body was found in a ditch in a local county. Eric Rodiger, 17, disappeared in 1985. Body was found near the highway. 
Michael Allen Glenn, 29. Um, body was found uh, just off the highway in Ohio, which is further away. Um, this is in 1986. So again, that's another sketchy one. James Robin, 21, went missing in 1987. Body found at the side of the highway with strangulation marks. Uh, Jean-Paul Talbot, um, strangled in 1989, again found in Ohio. Stephen Elliott, 26, um, uh, reported by his family not to be gay or involved in prostitution. So um, this is a bit of an, an oddity here, found on the side of the road. He was found just in his underwear, so they presumed that there was a sexual motivation there. Um, Clay uh, Boatman, um, last seen at a gay bar, 1990, um, body found in Ohio. Thomas Clevenger Jr., 19, known for selling sex in gay bars. And Otto Gary Becker, 42, body found in a ditch um, near Indiana in 1991. Now, I listed all of them out because that is a large number of victims ranging in age from 42. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 2 to 14 um, that have been attributed to uh, Herb Baumeister. I think I mentioned before that Michael Andrew Riley was seen photographed with Baumeister at the theatre that he was last seen at. And someone didn't show to disclose this photo until the late 90s. So yeah. I think that's where a lot of the speculation comes from. Well, and Michael Andrew Riley was a 22-year-old white man who wasn't a sex worker, which is consistent with the other victims that yeah. we talk about that were found on the farm. And I think this is an interesting component to the case and, and uh, some of the, the criticism of this is... Um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, poverty-driven sex workers, this is the 1980s and 1990s, poverty-driven male sex workers at the time were probably on the lowest of police radar. Um, and there's a lot of criticism that these victims, which sometimes get labelled as Herb's victims, um, may have had multiple different killers um, with different motivations, but people like to tie it all to him. The victims that we can directly tie to Herb Baumeister were all found buried on his hollow farm property. There were the remains of 11 persons found on the property, um, and eight of which have been identified. That's where I got that number from earlier. The eight victims that have been identified were uh, Johnny Bayer, 20, Alan Brossard, 28, who is very relevant to the investigation, um, Roger A. Goodlett, 
33, Richard Hamilton, 20, Stephen Hale, 26, Jeff Jones, 31, and Michael Kuhn, sorry, Michael Kuhn, 46, and Manuel Resendez, 31. Um, so all white men, largely in their early 20s, but some of them older, seem to be Herb's type, I guess. Now, the investigation... Um, which eventually identified her Baumeister as a killer is uh, incredibly strange in, in various ways. Um, and not the first time this has happened, but indicative of a lot of uh, police failures in not connecting the dots. Um, so Alan Wayne uh, Broussard, 28, who I mentioned earlier, went missing in June of 1994, um, last seen at a gay bar called Brothers. Um, when his family reported him missing to police, um, the police said that there was some weird rule where they couldn't report him missing for 48 hours and then they couldn't initiate a missing persons investigation for 30 days which I've never heard of before, but this was some particular rule. Um, uh, um, Broussard's, Alan Broussard's family found this unacceptable, and so they hired a private investigator uh, called Virgil Vandergriff. Now, he's, he's this kind of, I don't want to call him a comedic figure, but like... Well, we were laughing <laughs> before we recorded. He kind of looks like a mix of Tom Atkins and... What's his name? Tom Selleck. Like... Do you, know, do you know who reminds me of? Uh, uh, Detective Luigi Macaroni. <laughs> With hair. <laughs> Look, he, from, from Killer Condom. He looks like someone that you can imagine just like smoking a cigar, hearing you out, but you, yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't want to mess with him. Like old school film noir private detective. Yes, just, go, just Google him. Virgil. Virgil uh, Vandergriff is his name. I mean, even the name. I mean, it's perfect. It's a perfect name. <laughs> um, and look, he, he gets a lot of credit for doing most of the investigative work here when the police had failed. So. Well, yeah, it seems like even with the missing person procedures at the time, the police didn't really want to touch this because it involved gay men or was no. a lot of gay men going missing in the area and they were just sort of trying to keep their hands clean of it. There, there, there did seem to be a reluctance, particularly with... Um, not in this case. I didn't see any reporting on this case, but in some of the other cases that we've looked at with serial killers against gay men in the early 90s, there was an assumption that if gay men were diagnosed with HIV, that they would abandon people. Like, they would just ghost out of that mm. situation and, you know, go to palliative care in a different city. So this was enough of either a real phenomena or something that police perceived that they didn't take missing gay men um, as seriously as others. Uh, Vandergriff soon learned about all the bodies that were turning up and attributed to the I-70 Strangler and um, began to suspect that a serial killer was on the loose. Um, he came across a, an article in a magazine that talked about uh, Jeff Jones, who is one of the other men found in um, her Baumeister's farm, who disappeared in mid-1993. And then, literally, as he's working on the case of Alan Brassard, uh, Vandergriff gets a panicked mother calling him, saying that her son, uh, Roger Allen Goodlett, 
34 years old, has gone missing as well, um, last seen at a gay bar. And so um, Van der Griff is really um, putting this all together and um, trying to convince police that there is a serial killer on the loose. And then he gets contacted by a man that we only know as Tony Harris. Yes, which not is, his real name. It's a pseudonym. <laughs> Uh, who seems to uh, give us a story that he actually had a brush with this killer. Yeah, well, Tony's very interesting. It's very cinematic, the scenario. Well, well, before we get to it, though, I think it's good to talk about that. This is where, like, in the, the, the movie, it would be like, meanwhile, um, literally happening at the same time as uh, Vandegriff is investigating... Um, and putting together all of these pieces, um, uh, Baumeister's son, Eric, is he's 13 years old. He's just wandering around, you know, having a fun time on the Fox Hollow farm where he discovers a skull. He tells his mother about the Julie, Juliana, um, and she initially worries and freaks out and asks Herb about it. And Herb said oh, that's just my father's old anatomical skeleton. I'll, I'll take care of that. No need to worry. Um, and Julie puts that very far back <laughs> into the recesses of her mind. We believe what we want to believe when it comes to love. As the skeleton is right next to only having sex six times in 25 years. <laughs> very firm, firmly back in the subconscious. Yeah, look, poor. I hope you found love later in life with someone who was honest and treated you right, Juliana. Oh, I don't know. I, I actually, I'm assuming she's in hiding has probably changed her name. Probably. Um, all right. So I thought, I thought that was worth just kind of situating that like, all of this shit is happening at the same time. So Vandergriff is approached with this guy who we're calling Tony Harris. And Tony Harris has a story. So Tony claims that while he was at a gay bar called 501 Club. 501 Club? Yeah. I was, anyways, I th apologies listeners. I do think I was calling him the I-71 Strangler before when it was I-70 Strangler. So I gotta, I gotta get my facts straight. If Jared just tilted the computer towards <laughs> me in case I, in case I need it. So Tony claims that he was, you know, out at the club and he came across a missing persons photo for Roger, who was his friend, Roger Yes, Bidlet. sorry, that's an important point, that, yes. that Roger and Tony were friends. Yes, and Vandergriff had put these posters up, trying to, because he'd been scouting out the bars, trying to find out, you know, what's going on here, why are all these gay men disappearing? And Tony says that he came across a man who, you know, we later find out was Herb um, Baumeister, and that he was sort of scouring this poster with such an intensity that he thought that, you know, he must be the killer. I've just got a feeling. Which is, which is, again, my first red flag that he might be embellishing the story a little bit because he was saying things like, I just had a feeling by the way he was captivate, captivated by that poster that he was the man who killed my friend Roger. Which, I don't know. I mean, look, it's a, it's a dramatic stretch, but sometimes you do see someone who just get that feeling like something ain't right here. Which makes it, but it makes his uh, actions even more baffling because um, our Tony <laughs> starts chatting up this mysterious man who says that his name is Brian. His name is not Brian. His name is Herb. Um, and... Uh, Brian slash Herb invites Tony back to his place for a cocktail and a swim. 
Yeah, Herb had quite an illustrious indoor pool. Yes. And apparently so, it was like super deep on both ends. and was, It sounded like it was kind of like an Olympic standard pool. I don't know. Well, they had money. So they yeah. had money. So this is at the farm. They had um, money enough to build this pool. So he goes back with this guy who he suspects has killed his friend. I would do this, Jared. You say this is uh, out of the question. I, would, I, my, I just have to know. I'd be that person who gets killed because I have to know. He shows up and this suspicious man, Herb, offers him a drink, which he refuses. Um, uh, Herb, who's claiming to be Brian here, gets infuriated and then goes and does a whole bunch of drugs, is what they're presuming, because when he comes back, he's really chipper. After he's done a bit of drugs, he takes him out to the pool, and that's where Tony sees all these mannequins posed around the pool, and uh, Herb slash Brian's comments is something like, I get lonely out here, and I just like to have a little family. Yes. Well, his you know actual family weren't cutting it, so these these mannequins. It kind of reminds me of Maniac, the remake, where Elijah Wood's character is obsessed with these mannequins, and he's that's a good remake. Yeah, I actually skele- like that. Movie. Yeah, well, at least they actually did something different. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So red flags there. Tony, get the fuck out of there. But no, Herb slash Brian starts talking about that he's uh, learnt a new sexual thrill that he could do where um, he strangles people in a certain way and it gets you off, basically. Um, So uh, Tony says, okay, I'll try it on you first, and originally tries it with a pool hose on Herb slash Brian. And then the tables turn and Tony is strangled, uh, what initially seems like a light sexual strangling, not here to judge, uh, eventually turns into an aggressive strangulation to a point where Tony pretends to pass out. So I think Tony was secretly loving this a little bit. He was he was like, I am getting this expose. I don't think any of this bit happened. I think he probably saw this guy and then wanted this very elaborate story. I don't know. Then why did, he, why did he go under a pseudonym then? Why wasn't he like, I want to be famous. This is, my name is Bruce... Kensington, I don't know. Oh, maybe. But apparently when Tony pretended to pass out, then Herb really freaked out. And mm. was like, people have died like this, man. Yeah, which, again, we don't know much about the circumstances of how the victims died previously. But it could be that Herb was a bit of a... What's an analogous killer? Grinder killer... Or, I mean, Dharma's. Some of Dharma's victims were not intentionally killed either. Um, Might be one of these people that has a sexual interest in unconscious people, which I think we've established by now in this podcast. Leads to death. And is a thing that people have. um, And so maybe they were accidental deaths. One thing I found is why do so many of our killers like strangling people? Like, if I was going to be a killer, I'd go for a much more inventive. It's not messy. That's true, and I, and I guess that's not is for a, sexual. Yeah, it's for a sexual thrill often, I guess. Yeah, and you're not, yeah, yeah you're not like stabbing as much with your blood to clean it up. And yeah, all that's true. But again, it could be because um, keeping in mind that Herb is high as a kite on coke or whatever at this point, um, it could be that he has accidentally killed a, a number of sex workers and other people whilst attempting this. Um, so uh, Herb eventually passes out from the drugs. Tony says that he tried to find evidence in the house for a little bit. 
Um, but Herb slash Brian ends up waking up um, and Tony asks him to drive him home and he does. So Tony got away from a very weird situation. Um, and it was about a month afterwards that Tony noticed Herb again, or Brian again, at a gay bar and he noted down um, the number plate. Tony passed the plates over to law enforcement who ran it and, and it came back uh, for Herb Baumeister. Uh, they, the police then tried to search, uh, Herb's property, um, on November of 1995. They couldn't get a court warrant. Again, the judicial system was very kind to Herb. Um, so they, they tried to get consent to search the property. Um, Herb obviously refused straight away. Um, and Julie also initially refused, citing the fact that she trusted her husband. Um, it took a, about a year until June of 1996 um, that Julie actually started to initiate divorce proceedings against Herb, and later on she noted that she couldn't get that image of the skull and the skeleton that her son had seen on the farm out of her head, and decided that she she needed to um, she needed to divorce yes. him and and report things to police. Smile will, will only take you so far, you know. She finally did say, "Yeah, look, she finally clued in on everything." Um, when they searched the property, they found over five thousand bone fragments and teeth. And as I said earlier, um, they belong to eleven men, of which eight have been identified. Um, once they found the bodies, uh, an arrest warrant was issued for Herb Baumeister. Uh, Herb fled to Canada, or the, the border of Canada, and in uh, Pinnery Provincial Park, Ontario, uh, uh, Herb shot himself in the head. He left a suicide note citing the fact that his business was going under and that his wife was divorcing him, uh, but not the fact that he killed a bunch of people as the reason he killed himself. He was 49 at the time of his death. Unfortunately, because of Herb's suicide, we don't know much about the victims. We don't know how many to attribute to him. I think if you've got a whole bunch of bodies on your farm, you can at least say that you're probably responsible for some of them. Um, at least for the bodies that were found on the farm, Julie was told about the date of their disappearance and every single date that those victims had disappeared on, Julie and the kids had been visiting at a local lake. So I think we can say that Herb is responsible for those deaths, but he may also be responsible for many more. Uh, Fox Hollow Farm uh, was recently bought, well, well, bought in 2009 by a couple um, with the last name Graves. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a little strange when <laughs> I was reading it. But look, Mr. Graves wants to transform the property. He wants to bring the good vibes in. They, yeah. knew, they knew what happened when they bought it. Yeah. And they probably... I would absolutely live in a, like, a killer... A killer farm is even better. It's, like, plenty of... Well, they probably made some light money out of it anyway because there's been, like, ghost hunters, some paranormal 
investigation shows, documentary yeah. films about the property. Apparently, a couple of people have mentioned seeing a legless man in red on the property. Oh. So I don't know if one of the victims was missing a leg or so. I guess we don't know because, you know. No, because they're bones, detached yeah. bones, yeah. Um, that's a, that's a lot of them were still missing their heads and their heads couldn't be found. I've got no further info about what potentially happened to those heads. Um, but yeah, so the, a lot of them are incomplete, so it wouldn't surprise me if one of them is missing a leg. Yes, well, sounds eerie nevertheless. And yeah, the usual stories of doors opening, things moving around, you know, you've heard it all about this property. So <laughs> I wish I believed in ghosts. Well, just that if, you, if ghosts were real, wouldn't they do more exciting things than like move a drawer? Yeah. You know, calling all spirits, um, give us a, a happy, but like... Do, maybe at the Patreons, we could do like a seance where I try and like get Satan to possess you and we see if it works. Look, let's, let's, let's skip the possession part, but we can summon somebody. <laughs> so the history of Herb Baumeister is still uh, incomplete. Um, as I said, there's still a number of uh, victims, even on the farm property, that have not been identified as yet. Um, but a, another history of a very troubled man who maybe if he'd gotten some mental health treatment early, probably wouldn't have killed at least 11 men. Thank you for listening to the Sinister Sissies podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sinister Sissies. You can follow me on Twitter at Jared Bartle. That's Jared with a Y. You can contact Sam and follow us on Instagram at Sinister underscore Sissies. And we would really like for you to support us on Patreon for extra episodes and also early and ad-free episodes um, as we release them. Because how annoying are those ads? Yeah, I know. Who? Hey, yeah, this, I'm going gonna, gonna to insert <laughs> one right now just to, just to interrupt the flow. Let's do it. Um, until next time, though, stay sinister. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.